Good morning, church. Uh, it's a long scripture, but this is our word of God. Um, it's 1 Samuel 18, 1-4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of... Oh, just wait. The soul of um, David and Jonathan loved him and his own soul. And Saul took him the day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. 1 Samuel 19, 1-7 And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to, so, to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has no sin against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. 1 Samuel 20, 12 to 17. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send a disclosed it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, I, if I do not disclose it to you and send you, any, uh, send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of, Lord, of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vigilance 
of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swore again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. First Samuel 20, 30 to 34. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You, son of perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as uh, the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send, uh, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? Why? What has he done? But Saul hurled, uh, hurled uh, his spear at him and struck him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food. This, um, the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. One Samuel or First Samuel twenty-three, fifteen to eighteen. David saw this, that uh, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horsh, Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish. And Jonathan went home. Second Samuel 9, 1-7. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba or Ziba. And they called him to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of, the, of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent, sent up and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, 
do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul. For your father, you shall eat at my table always. This Ardeni, the word of God. Thank you. Very long. <laughs>、everyone. We started a new series on relationships, not just romantic relationships, but all the different types of relationships that we face and come into contact with in the course of daily life. And our world—I don't know if you agree with this—but I'm going to make the argument: our world is really bad at relationships. Now, if there's anyone here who doesn't believe that our world is really bad at relationships, I looked up. An article on the New York Times this week of the terminology that you need to be up to date with if you want to be part of the modern dating scene. Here are some of the things that stood out to me that really confirmed for me that our world is bad at relationships. First up, cookie jarring. Have any of you ever heard of cookie jarring? So cookie jarring is when you have someone that you could potentially date. But they're kind of your your plan B, your backup option, and so you keep sending them messages, keep leading them on, keep them available in case your first choice doesn't work out. So then you can always dip your hand back into the cookie jar and have a quick snack. Cookie jarring. <laughs> Second one, gaslighting. Do you guys know this one? It's when you manipulate someone and mess with, your, with their mind to make them think that their own thoughts, their own memories, are not reliable. It, it's like borderline torture. It's horrible. Third, I think, especially our younger people are all going to know this one: ghosting. Everyone knows that one. You know, when you're dating someone, you're talking with them, and all of a sudden you disappear, cut off contact, don't leave a trace, like a ghost. And then the fourth one. Is a situationship. Anyone know what a situationship is? A situationship is a romantic relationship where there's a total lack of communication, and so neither party in the relationship actually knows what their relationship status is. Are we just friends? Are we more than friends? Are we boyfriend and girlfriend? I don't know. We've never talked about it. So cookie jarring. Gaslighting, ghosting, situationship—according to the New York Times, these are terms that you need to be aware of if you want to be active in the modern dating scene. Now, does anyone agree with me that our world is really bad at relationships? If these are the things that that you need to be aware of to date today—things that span lack of communication to total abandonment to borderline torture—and they're all so common that they got highlighted as. Things we need to know if we want to date today, and as people who live in this world of bad relationships on a day-to-day -day basis, the beliefs and practices about relationships that are common in our world—it's all too easy for us to just slip into approaching relationships the same way as everyone around us, of thinking about relationships the same way as everyone in our world. 
if we're not intentionally fighting against the tide of the world that we live in, none of us are gonna approach relationships any differently than the rest of our world does, which is bad news for us because our world, like I said, tends to be really bad at relationships. And yet when you come to the Bible, the reality is that God calls the church to be really good at relationships. Not just romantic relationships, but relationships of all type. God wants the church to be really, really good at relationships. Jesus says when his followers have good relationships with one another, when we love one another and the world around us sees it, that's how the surrounding world knows that we follow him. Right? That's, that's part of why we are, are having this outreach Sunday. Like We know lots of people in the bridge have friends outside the church who don't know Jesus. And that is awesome. That is great. That is important. But if it's true that the world knows we follow Jesus and love him, by the love we have for one another, then there's actually a power when we get together with other Christians to hang out with friends who don't know Jesus yet because they get to see us loving one another. They get to see the love of Jesus at work among us. And and actually one of the best things we can do if we want our friends who don't know Jesus yet to become Christians is to love one another and have really good relationships with one another. So the church having good relationships with one another, both in terms of our romantic relationships, but also our friendships, relationships with parents and children, and if we work together as coworkers or bosses and employees, all of those relationships are really important that we do those well. And so over the coming several weeks, we're gonna be looking at different types of relationships, and we're gonna be looking at how to approach them through the lens of King David's life. And we're going to look at lots of different relationships that he had. Some he handles really well and we can learn from his success. Some he handles terribly poorly and we can learn from his failures. And a lot of them, there's a little bit of each. And today we're looking at friendship. What does it mean to have godly friendships? And we're going to look at David's relationship with Jonathan to to learn about friendship. And what we're going to see is that true friendship is intimate, sacrificial and faithful. It's intimate, it's sacrificial, and it's faithful. So those are gonna be our main points. It's intimate, sacrificial, faithful, and then point four, how to get there. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for speaking to us and, and telling us how you call us to live, but also giving us examples of people who did this well and who did this poorly so that we can learn from them and we can understand more clearly what it looks like to live this out in our world. And so we pray that as we look at your word today and we look at the story of David and Jonathan, that you would be speaking to us and showing us what you have to say to us about our friendships through this friendship in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, The first thing we see about friendships from David and Jonathan is that true friendship is intimate. And I realize for most people in our world, when we hear the word intimate, our minds immediately jump to one thing, which is physical intimacy. And that is not what I'm talking about here, right? There are people in recent years who have tried to push this idea that David and Jonathan's friendship was somehow sexual or physically intimate. There's nothing in the Bible that gives any hint or any indication that that was the case in any way, shape, or form. 
to come to the conclusion that that was part of their relationship requires you to completely ignore the context and world that the Bible was written in and just impose our world and our way of seeing things onto the Bible story. So David and Jonathan's relationship, it was not physically intimate or sexual in any way, but it was definitely intimate. And it has us a lot, a lot to teach us about how to have healthily intimate relationships today. And since all of us live in this same world where intimacy tends to just be equated with the physical a lot of the time, it's probably helpful to define intimacy so that we're all on the same page about what intimacy means. So the first definition I want us to look at comes from an article on healthline.com. It says, intimacy is closeness between people in personal relationships. It's what builds over time as you connect with someone, as you grow to care about each other and feel more and more comfortable during your time together. So it's about closeness, uh, an emotional connection, a strong relationship. It grows over time when your relationship is intentional about cultivating it. And based on this definition of intimacy, if you're married, sex can be part of the process of building intimacy with your spouse, but it, it's completely possible to have sex without intimacy or to have intimacy without sex. Let's look at one more definition of intimacy. Being intimate means into me see. See what she did there? Aha, clever. But it's, it's getting close enough with someone that we don't just operate on our assumptions about what they're like based on our initial stereotypes or assumptions or our understanding of what we would expect them to be based on how they look or what job they do or something like that. It's taking time to see beneath the surface and get to know them as a person. It's about understanding what's going to bring them joy or sadness. How are they going to respond in different situations in life? Knowing them for who they really are. And again, if you're married, sex can be part of that equation, but it doesn't have to be part of the equation for you to have an intimate relationship with someone. You can have deep intimacy in a totally non-sexual relationship. And I don't know about you, but like personally, I find that because of the way that our culture so often equates intimacy with sex, I can find it difficult to pursue intimate relationships with other people, especially other men. And, and there can be, even in our culture, that's unspoken or sometimes it gets spoken, this assumption that a relationship can't contain too much emotional intimacy without somehow turning physical at some point. And so if you want to avoid the, the danger of that happening, the easiest way is just don't get too emotionally intimate. Like withdraw, hold back, put up some barriers. And yet, as we look at David and Jonathan's relationship, we see this deep emotional intimacy that never turns physical. And we see from them that emotional intimacy, a strong intimacy, is a key ingredient in a strong and healthy friendship. And we see this as early as their first meeting in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that we just read. Verse 1 says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The Hebrew word that's translated as soul in this verse, it's a really big word that's hard to translate into English, but it basically refers to a person's inner self the entirety of your being and this movement or desire towards 
something else or someone else. There's this bond formed between David and Jonathan in that first moment of their meeting that ties their entire lives together. This verse is saying at the deepest level of their beings, David and Jonathan, they're bound together like two pieces of yarn that have been knitted together. You cannot tear them apart or destroy it without great pain to each of them. There's a deep and strong connection between them. There's actually one other place in the Old Testament where this language of souls being knitted together is used in the Hebrew. It's confusing because the English translates it instead of soul and knit together, it talks about life and bound to. But in the Hebrew, it's the same word, it's the same idea. And that's with a guy named Jacob. You may have heard of Jacob. He had 12 sons and several wives, but out of all his wives, his favorite was this girl named Rachel. And she had two sons and then she died. And so her oldest son, Joseph, became his favorite son out of the 12. But then he's told that Joseph dies. And so now his son, Benjamin, is the only living remnant of his favorite wife, as far as he knows. And when his sons go down to Egypt to get grain so that the family can have food to eat during a famine, Benjamin gets arrested for stealing a silver cup that belongs to the ruler of Egypt. And Benjamin's brothers come back and his big brother Judah says, please let Benjamin go, take me instead. Because our father's life is bound to his life. Our father's soul is knit to his soul. If this boy, if something bad happens to him, our father can't survive that. Now, why is that important for understanding today's passage? Because the language of having souls knit together, it's appropriate for describing the types of relationships that exist within a family. See, from the moment their souls are knit together, David and Jonathan's friendship, it's less like a friendship and more like a brotherhood. One commentator, he describes the relationship this way. From this moment forward, he says, whatever happens to David happens also to Jonathan. If David hurts, Jonathan hurts. If David rejoices, Jonathan rejoices. They're bound together. They're connected at this deep level. And that reality has major implications for our lives as a church today. Do you know why? Because according to the New Testament, when God saves you, part of the process of him saving you is adopting you into his family so that he is now your father. And if all of us share God as father, guess what that means about our relationships with one another? If you're a Christian, you're a brother and sister with every other Christian in this room. See, just as David and Jonathan's friendship was more like a brotherhood, God's plan and design is that Christians would interact with one another less like casual friends and more like brothers and sisters. That's why in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says things like, love one another with brotherly affection because he expects that within the church, there are these deep spiritual realities at work of us being bound together through Jesus as a family. It's also why in the vast majority of his letters, Paul, he's writing from far away to these churches that he wants to communicate with. And he doesn't just send a letter. He, he most of the time sends someone with the letter and he tells them, I'm sending this person to you so they can update you on how I'm doing. 
they can share with you what's happening in my life because I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just someone to give you instructions. I care about you personally. You're my brothers and sisters, and I want you to know what's happening in the small details of my life. There's this intimacy and this brotherly love present in Paul as he communicates with other Christians and relates to them. He's not maintaining a professional distance to keep himself from getting hurt. He's intimately involved in their lives. And just as David and Jonathan had this close, intimate, brotherly relationship, that's the type of relationship that God wants Christians to have with one another today. And obviously all the usual caveats apply, like each of us only has capacity for so many deep relationships. You can't be super, super close with everyone. Um, And it takes time to build these relationships and takes trust to build these relationships. But still, with all that being said, God wants Christians to have a deep level of intimacy with one another, to treat one another like brothers and sisters. And so I want to ask you, are you pursuing relationships that are deep and intimate with other people in the church? Even if it's taking time to develop them, are you moving in that direction? When you think about other people in the church, do you tend to see them as brothers and sisters caring enough to rejoice with them when they rejoice and mourn with them when they mourn? Or do you try and keep a distance, not get too attached, not get too involved? And if you don't tend to see the other people in the church as brothers and sisters, how can you take a step in that direction this week? I'm not saying that's going to be easy. It's, it's going to require a lot of us to overcome lots of cultural obstacles that we've had in our hearts that keep us from having too intimate of friendships with people. But this idea of intimacy, getting close to others, seeing the real them, letting them see the real us, it's an essential ingredient to true friendship. But it's not the only ingredient. We next see that true friendship is also sacrificial. And again, Friendships, approaching them with a sacrificial attitude in today's world, it, it's countercultural. Our world tends to think, I need to look out for myself. If I don't look out for myself, no one else is going to look out for me, and I'm just going to lose. I'm going to be behind. If I sacrifice my resources or my opportunities or my time in order to get someone else ahead, then I'm just behind. No one's going to come and help me. And yet again, we see in David and Jonathan's relationship that this is not true. Actually, the opposite is true. When we sacrifice for others, they tend to be more willing to sacrifice for us. And again, we see this right at the very beginning of David and Jonathan's relationship. At their first meeting, Jonathan does something. If you were paying attention during the reading and you heard this, you were probably like, that's really weird. Why is he doing this? It's weird to us, but it had huge significance in their culture. Chapter 18, verse 4 says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Like, that's weird, right? You're just standing there, and someone, like, takes off all their stuff and gives it to the other guy. Like, it's yours now. Why would he do that? Well, there's something really significant happening here. If you read through the entire book of 1 Samuel, robes are really important. They symbolize 
power over the nation of Israel. So in chapter 15, Saul is the king. Samuel comes to him and he's like, God's taken away the kingship from you. He's giving it to someone else. And Saul reaches out and he grabs Samuel's robe and he rips off a piece of it. And Samuel says, just like you have ripped off a piece of my robe, God has ripped the kingdom away from you. The robe is symbolic of the nation. Later on in chapter 24, Saul is chasing David through the wilderness and he goes to use the bathroom in a cave and it just happens to be the cave where David's hiding. And David, all his men are like, go kill him, you can be king. And David says, no, I'm not gonna do that. But he goes and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. He allows Saul to stay in power for now, but there's still this picture that the kingdom's gonna be transferred to David. And right here, we see another important robe. It's Jonathan's robe. And Jonathan, he is King Saul's oldest son. As the oldest son of the king, he is the crown prince. If Saul dies, Jonathan is the next in line to become king. The robe is a status symbol that shows his position. And what does he do with that robe? He gives it to David. He's essentially saying, David, all my position, all my power, all my authority, I give it to you. And giving David all of his weapons would have sent that same exact message. So in our world, we tend to read this verse and think that's weird. But in their world, in the ancient world, this was a drastically significant event. This is how one commentator described it. This was nothing less than an act of abdication. It may not have been official. It may not have been publicly known, but the covenant in verse three that they make, we may now reasonably suppose had something to do with David and Jonathan's respective prospects for power in Israel. David would take precedence and Jonathan would rejoice. What a sacrifice. Right at the start of their friendship, Jonathan sacrifices all of his power, all of his authority, all of his position, and he gives it to David. But the sacrifice isn't just seen there. It's a key trait of their entire friendship. We talked last week about how Saul very quickly turned against David after a happy start together. And he starts trying over and over and over to kill David, despite the fact that David has done nothing wrong against him. And it puts Jonathan in this awkward situation where he's caught between his father, who also happens to be the king, and his best friend, who's like a brother to him. And up until this point, Jonathan has been incredibly loyal to his father. But now he has a choice to make. And over and over, he chooses to offer to sacrifice his standing with his father for the good of his friend. We first see this in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse one. How would you like to be Jonathan right here? Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Saul just comes up, he gives a command to Jonathan, kill David. And remember, David at this point is the biggest obstacle standing in the way of Jonathan someday becoming king. By any earthly standard, they should not be friends, they should be bitter enemies. Jonathan now has not only permission, but a command to take David out. And rather than kill David, he warns him. It's essentially an act of treason against his own father. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes to his father and he advocates for David. He says, David hasn't done anything wrong. Why are you trying to kill him? Actually, he's sort of a national hero who's done lots of great things for you. 
And in this instance, it goes really well. Saul says, I'm sorry, you're right, David's a great guy, bring him back. But as we see throughout Saul's life, he has some intense mood swings. This conversation could have ended very differently than it did. But Jonathan was willing to sacrifice his father's pleasure with him for the sake of his friendship. And of course, Saul's pleasure with David does not last long because the very next chapter, he's after David again, trying to kill him again. David knows about it. Jonathan doesn't. So David has to convince Jonathan, like, your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's not completely sold on this idea, but he agrees to do a test. He's going to do a test and see if his father is okay with David now or if he really wants David dead. And Saul fails the test miserably. He makes it very, very clear that he desperately wants David dead. And so when Jonathan speaks a word in David's defense and says, come on, what's he done wrong? Why do you want him dead? Did you notice what Saul did? He picked up a spear and threw it at his own son, tried to kill him. Jonathan sacrificed not only his father's pleasure with him because of his friendship with David, he sacrificed his physical safety to be a good friend to David. Like I said, from a, from a worldly perspective, there's every reason for David and Jonathan to be bitter rivals, to be enemies. But Jonathan repeatedly sacrifices and lays down his own rights and privileges and even his safety to make this friendship with David possible. And my hope is for most of us that our friendships involve none of this political intrigue that David and Jonathan's did. My hope is that most of us, our friendships involve none of this threat to our physical safety that Jonathan endured for David. But even if that's the case, sacrifice is still a key part of any relationship. Whether it's because your friend sometimes lets you down and you need to sacrifice having things your way for the sake of the relationship, or whether it's because your friend's in need and you need to sacrifice some of your stuff or your time to help them out, or for any other reason, all healthy friendships require sacrifice. If we're not willing to sacrifice to make our friendships work, then it's not really a friendship, it's a transaction. I'll give you what you want and spend time with you and hang out with you as long as you give me what I want and do things that make me happy. But the minute you stop, I'm out. But true friendship requires us to make sacrifices. It's not just a transaction. We stick it out when things get hard. And we see that happening in David and Jonathan's relationship. And we also see one more key trait of good friendship in their relationship. And that is that true friendship is faithful. If you look back on the story, David and Jonathan become friends right at the peak of David's popularity. He has just killed this giant named Goliath that everyone else in the nation was too terrified to fight. And he is now, everyone's cheering for him and praising him. He's, he's a national hero. And very quickly, he goes from national hero to public enemy number one. The king literally takes army squadrons out into the wilderness to chase down this one guy because he is so desperate to get rid of him. It would have been understandable when David has this fall from grace for Jonathan to just distance himself from David. You know, it's not really good for my image to have that type of guy as a friend. 
And yet Jonathan doesn't do that. Even as late as 1 Samuel chapter 23, Saul, he's taken 3,000 soldiers to chase David into the wilderness. And David's in hiding. And Jonathan comes to David. And verse 16 says that Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan comes to David. He encourages him to stay faithful to what God called him to do. Even as Jonathan's father is wandering around the wilderness with his best troops to try and kill David. If Saul found out that Jonathan was visiting David and helping him and encouraging him rather than killing him, Jonathan would have been a dead man. But Jonathan continues to be faithful to David, even when it's not easy, even when it's not advantageous to him. And this faithfulness actually goes both ways. See, several times in today's passage, we're told that David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. A covenant is a legally binding, but deeply personal promise. It's legally binding. It changes your legal status, but it's deeply personal. The the clearest example of a covenant in our world is marriage, where you're legally connected to someone now, but actually there's this love that leads you to make that legal connection and the love grows deeper because of the existence of the legal connection. And in our world, outside of marriage, we don't make covenants a ton. But in the ancient world, they would make them, for different reasons, more frequently than we do today. And so with David and Jonathan, the covenants that they made involved promises to look out for one another, to protect one another's families, to support one another. Jonathan pledges to support David's claim to the throne, even though he typically would be the one in line to get it. And David promises to care for Jonathan and his family once he has the throne, which would have been totally countercultural in that world, right? If you have a dynasty of kings and someone from outside that family becomes king, first order of business is kill everyone in that family so that none of them can come and make a claim to your throne so that your position is safe. But David doesn't do that. He promises, even though you're part of this royal family, even though you're the one who's next in line, you and your family will have my protection no matter what. And sadly, Jonathan dies in the same battle as his father, King Saul. And when that happens, David becomes king of part of Israel and has a civil war for several years before before he finally becomes king of the whole nation. And then once he's king of the nation, there time of having to secure his borders and get the nation under control and all aligned around him. But then once that happens, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, it says, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he learns that Jonathan has this son, Mephibosheth, who's still alive. So David calls Mephibosheth. He gives him all of Saul's former land. He has Mephibosheth start eating his meals at King David's table. His care for Jonathan and his family, his faithfulness to this covenant leads him to track down Jonathan's living family member, to give him great financial gifts, and to invite him into this personal relationship with him where they're going to eat meals together moving forward. And David treating Jonathan's son with this type of faithfulness it was a potentially costly move for David, just like Jonathan's faithfulness to David had been. 
Because when Saul died and David came into power, David would have been the one to take over all of Saul's land. By giving the land back to someone from Saul's family, there was a risk that Saul's relatives would see this as an invitation to take back the throne for themselves. You know, Mephibosheth himself, he was injured, he couldn't really walk, but we're told in the introduction to him that he has a son. And so maybe now that he's back close to the center of power, Mephibosheth will start conspiring with his grandfather's old associates and putting things in place so that once King David's out of the way, his son can take over, his family can be the ones back on the throne. Now, thankfully for the nation of Israel, that did not happen. But it was a risk that David took, and a real risk that he took in order to be faithful to his friendship with Jonathan. And again, in our friendships today, faithfulness is essential if we want to have lasting friendships. It's so common in our world. When things get hard in a friendship, just walk out, leave, forget about it. But faithfulness, it's about sticking it out when it's hard. Continuing to be a friend, maybe even when you don't want to, when there's nothing obvious that you can gain from it. Faithfulness is a key, important relationship in healthy friendship. So those are the three key ingredients in a healthy friendship that we see with David and Jonathan. There's intimacy, letting them in so they can know the real you, taking time to get to know the real them. There's sacrifice, being willing to let go of your advantages, let go of your possessions for the good of your friend. And then faithfulness, sticking it out through tough times, even when there's nothing obvious for you to get as a benefit from it. The ingredients, they're simple. But if you've ever tried to live them out, you know it's not easy to put them into practice. Because we become defensive, we put up barriers that keep intimacy from being possible. We become selfish. We don't want to sacrifice our things for others. And in our world of FOMO, I mean, every time a friendship gets tough and we realize this isn't necessarily what I would choose to do in this moment, our mind starts racing of all the things that I'm missing out on by continuing being committed to this relationship. All the sacrifices that we have to make to stay faithful to this friend and so often it just doesn't seem worth the cost. But if we want to be good friends, if we want to do these things, intimacy, sacrifice, faithfulness, how do we get there? How do we reach the point where we can actually do these things? And here's a hint. It's not just about trying harder to do better. True friendship, it's too costly, it's too difficult, it demands too much of us that goes against our world's message of where to find the good life for us to just do it on our own power. If we try to work up the strength within ourselves to make ourselves do these things, we're going to fail. And then when we fail, we're going to be ashamed of our failure. And then that's going to lead us to put up more barriers, to hide our shame that make it even harder to have that intimacy that leads to true friendship in the future, and it just spirals out of control. No, if we want to be true, good friends, the process needs to start outside ourselves. You know, it's really interesting. The books of First and Second Samuel, it's largely a commentary on the nature of power. Where does true power come from? 
And over and over in these two books, we see people who look big and strong and powerful in the world's eyes revealed to be truly weak. Saul, the king, who's so insecure that he needs to take thousands of soldiers into the wilderness because he's so scared of one shepherd boy. But over and over in these books, we also see people who look weak and insignificant, like David hiding in a cave, who are actually strong and powerful. He's God's anointed. He's going to be the true king. Our world has images of of greatness and where the good life is found. And like I just mentioned, if we buy those images, if we try to follow them, it's going to keep us from ever being good, true, faithful friends. Because we want to keep a good image. We want to do the things that make us look strong and we block out intimacy. We block out sacrifice. We do everything to get ourselves ahead. And I think the really scary thing is that without even realizing it, most, if not all of us, have slipped into the world's way of viewing greatness and the good life. Here's the test. Imagine you're watching the news. You see a news story saying the crown prince of Saudi Arabia has renounced his rights to the throne and given them to his friend because he admired the friend's character and faith. What would you think of that, friend, uh, that prince? How many of you would think, like, what a noble and admirable thing to do? Okay, like three people. How many of you would think, what an idiot? Like, if you have such a great friend, make them your number one advisor, but never, ever, 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 ever give up that kind of power. Anyone? Anyone there? I would be there. I think most of us would be there, right? Even the ones who are like, it's noble, it's admirable. They'd be like, he's also an idiot, right? Because that's how our world views power. And yet, this, this move that we almost universally see as idiotic, it's exactly what Jonathan does for David in today's passage. And the Bible presents him not as an idiot, but as someone who's doing something great and heroic by doing it. Do you realize God is far less concerned about how much power and authority we have than we are? That God's far less concerned about our titles than we are? That in God's eyes, it's far greater to be humble and to be faithful than to be a king? How many of us can honestly say that's how we see the world on a day-to-day basis in our lives? My guess is none of us. I don't. My guess is that most, if not all of us, we default to seeing greatness and the good life the world's way rather than God's way. And when we do that, it's going to lead us to use other people, to manipulate other people, to take advantage of other people so we can get ahead rather than sacrificing for them and being faithful to them and letting them see the real us. Believing and buying into the world's picture of greatness, it keeps us from true and deep friendships. And yet the Bible gives us another picture of true greatness. You see, these three traits of intimacy and sacrifice and faithfulness, they're key traits of another huge character in the Bible, a guy named Jesus. Although he was God, he came to earth as a human being so that God could understand firsthand on an intimate level what it's like to be human. And so that humanity could see and know God intimately, face to face. 
Jesus laid down his life sacrificially to forgive humanity for all our rebellion and sin against God. And Jesus is faithful. He promises that if we trust in him, he will guard and protect us forever. Jesus operates on a different value system than our world does. And yet, so many of us think if I don't operate on the world's value system, I'm gonna miss out on true life. Jesus shows us the opposite is true. Jesus doesn't miss out on true life. He becomes the source of true life to everyone who trusts in him. See, it's not until we know Jesus personally as the truest and best friend possible, who's faithful to us, who sacrificed himself for us, who invites us to know him intimately, that we're gonna be able to be true friends to the people around us. See, until we experience that kind of love, we're constantly gonna grasp for affirmation, for a sense of fulfillment through our own accomplishments, the world promises, but it can't ever truly provide. And we'll use and manipulate others to get ourselves ahead and that's gonna kill relationships. But when we realize someone else is gonna look out for us and someone else is gonna care for us without us having to lift a finger, it sets us free to care for the people around us and sacrifice for them because we know we're gonna be taken care of. We know we're gonna be safe. But until we get that, the way of living we see in these passages, it's gonna seem absurd to us. So our big takeaway today is not go have intimate, sacrificial, faithful friendships. Our number one big takeaway is understand the great love of God for you that's shown in Jesus. Learn his way of seeing the world. And it's only after we do that that we can take these steps of intimacy and sacrifice and faithfulness and have them be part of our lives in a way that'll be healthy and lasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of true friendship that we got to see today in our passage. We thank you for David and Jonathan and the way that they cared for one another because of their love for you. But we thank you even more for Jesus and the care that he shows us, the way that he sacrifices himself for us, the way that he's faithful to us, the way that he invites us to know him intimately. I pray that you would help us to know and experience your love this week and to be great friends in all of our relationships that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.